Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of God, David, they were indignant. Matthew 21, 12 through 15. This is God's word. Father, we lift up your holy name, and we thank you, Lord, for your word, your word that gives us direction, it gives us life, and it continues to help us uh, navigate this crazy, crazy world. I pray for everyone here, Lord Jesus, that they would have ears to hear all that you have to say through our pastor, Andrew. Thank you for the word that you are sharing with us. Amen. It was a relatively ordinary day. The temple was a lot busier than usual, however, because it was Sab- it was uh, Passover. This Jewish feast where people from surra- the surrounding area would come to worship Yahweh. And as you're standing in the temple, all this commotion, rustling, bustling of shoulders, you hear a commotion across the room. And as your eyes dart across the room, you see a table flung in the air and with it all of its contents scatter out. And table after table is being turned over and you hear the commotion and shouts and yelling of people as they're all moving away from this person who has gone mad turning these tables over. And with the turning of the tables, you hear them slam and the, 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 the wings of doves rustle in their cages. And all of a sudden, the place goes silent because all the tables had been turned. And you could hear the sound of the money hit the floor. And suddenly, a voice emerges. And it says this, this is my father's house. And in my father's house is to be called a house of prayer. But you are making it a den of robbers. And it was so painfully quiet as he said those words. Because with them came the sting of conviction. The words that he said, abundantly clear. The people had lost their way. Over the last several weeks as a community, we've been in a series entitled House of Prayer. And today is the culmination of that series. It is the final installment of this series. However, the journey is just getting started for us as a community. That though this series has come to an end, we are just beginning to embark on the journey of prayer. Now, there's no way for us to have a series entitled House of Prayer without talking about this passage right here. And in good fashion, I've saved the best for last, right? This word that Jesus has for us here. Now, there's so much to talk about this passage. We could talk about Jesus' judgment on the religious leaders. We could talk about the, the uh, injustice committed against the poor. We could talk about the corrupt system of worship and how all that happened. But today, I simply want to focus on this phrase from Jesus. My house will be called a house of prayer. Over the last several years, there's been an awakening in my heart 
for the presence of God. You see, when we planted this church, our vision was relatively simple. It was this. We wanted to build a place for the presence of God for our community. And it's, it's marked our language and how we've talked about things. And even um, the sticker we've placed on the wall, his presence changes everything. But if I could be totally honest, I don't think we were entirely sure of what all that would entail. We knew the direction that we wanted to go, but we did not know what the journey would look like. But as we've journeyed with Jesus, we have begun to see what a people marked by his presence actually looks like. And to be a community that is built for the presence of God, it looks like we will be a house of prayer. Jesus makes that abundantly clear because he says his house, the place that he dwells and is amongst his people, is a house of prayer. Now, this awakening in my heart has created a deep hunger and longing for our community to experience the presence of God like never before. And the best way I can kind of put language to how I've been feeling is in the words of my son, Judah. Judah just turned three, and uh, I, I tell a lot of stories about my kids. They may have to go to therapy later for how much I'm airing out their lives on here, but um, he's a snackaholic, to say the least. Pray for him. He uh, loves to snack, and he loves to have drinks. That's his thing. Eat meals, not so much. Snack out of the pantry, that's his bag. And so it's, we're, we're ready for bedtime. It's bedtime in the Royale household. The boys are clean, finally. Their teeth are brushed, pajamas on. Things are like peaceful in the house. And the, and the boys are getting ready to go to bed. However, I have a hankering for something sweet. And so the boys are doing, you know, bedtime rituals and stuff. And so I, like a sneaky ninja, slip away from the scene, right, and make my way towards the kitchen. And quietly and carefully, I walk up to the pantry door, open the pantry door ever so slightly and quietly, peek around to make sure nobody's coming. I step into the pantry, and I reach into the area where the kids can't get, where we keep the really, really good stuff that's terrible for you. And quietly and carefully, I pull out a piece of candy, and I check to make sure no one's on the way. Come back into the pantry, and quietly, you would, you, uh, you would never hear it, slightly open the wrapper, get the candy, place it on my tongue, and just as it hits my tongue, I hear... I want some, and suddenly he's behind me there. I've been caught. I'm busted. I didn't hear him come in, dragging his blanket, but he saw me, and, and he, didn't even, he wasn't even sure what I just placed in my mouth, but he knew one thing. He wanted it. Now, this is one story of too many that I could tell you about how many times my son has said this phrase, I want some. Anything we have he wants some of it, whether it's coffee, whether, you know, Celeste had a pre-workout or whatever it is. He wants some of whatever it is that we have, not even sure of what exactly it is. And this simple expressed longing of I want some is often met with an invitation to participate in what we have, to take a bite, to have a taste, to experience what we are experiencing. And this has been my prayer. I want some of that. As I read through the book of Acts and I hear about a church that is gathering to pray as two of their leaders have been imprisoned in jail. And as they're praying, they're praying for God to show up and release them from prisons. And suddenly they hear a knock at the door and it is Peter, the very one they're praying for him to be released. I want some of that. 
as I read about the desert mothers and fathers who, as uh, the church had become corrupted and partnered with, with political idolatry in Rome, they resisted the culture by building rhythms of prayer. I said, I want some of that. As I read about the Moravian community and them birthing a movement of 24-7 prayer among refugees in a borrowed land, I said, I want some of that. As I read about the civil rights movement and how they got divine strategy about how to protest nonviolently, not from books, but from prayer gatherings where they come and say, Holy Spirit, how do you want us to bring about justice in our day? I want some of that. And even as I'm reading about an outpouring of the Spirit currently happening in Asbury, a college, I say, I want some of that. And it's not because I want an experience. It's because I want more of Jesus. I want more of his presence. And I don't just want it anywhere. I want it here. And I don't want it just with anybody. I want it with you all. I want, to, I want us to experience the presence of God like never before. But this begs the question, how? How do we become a house of prayer? Now, for us to embark on this journey, it begins in one place only, for us to reclaim our calling as royal priests. Now, I realize that when we talk about calling, that is a common Christian word that we use. It's common Christian vernacular, and it's often used to describe all sorts of um, different realities in a believer's life. We use it all the time. Do I feel called to this? I don't feel called to that. What is my calling, right? And it's kind of vague and mysterious, and, you know, it's out there in the world. And is it my vocation? Is it how I serve in the church? What, there's all these things. And I'm not speaking about the specifics of a calling. What I'm talking about is more of a cosmic calling. What is our calling as human beings made in the image of God? And it's simple. Our calling is this, to be royal priests. I realize that language is kind of weird, and you don't associate yourself with royal priest, you know? Uh, those might have connotations in your mind or images of your mind of like ornate robes and maybe a crown on your head or somewhere in England in the halls of power there's a monarchy or whatever it is like that. That's not exactly what we're talking about here, not what the biblical authors have in mind. But all I'm going to ask is to set aside those mental images for a moment and let me paint for you a biblical portrait of our calling as royal priests. Now, like any good biblical theology, it always begins in Genesis. Like any good biblical theology, it always begins in Genesis. So the scriptures open up with God and humans partnering together in the creation of the earth. He has set Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and to work it. Now, there's two key understandings that are going to shape the whole biblical narrative and our time together, and it's this. The Garden of Eden as a temple, and Adam and Eve as royal priests. Let's take first the Garden of Eden as a temple. As the scriptures open up, God's presence inhabits this place called the Garden in Eden. Now, wherever God's presence is, that place becomes holy, set apart, unique. And in the ancient world, 
A place you would go to meet with God was referred to as a temple. It is a way of, of designating a place as sacred. It is the place where God's presence is. And so in the opening of the scriptures, Genesis is working really hard for you to see Eden as not simply a garden, but as a temple garden. Now, I don't want you to imagine like your grandma's house where she's growing some jalapenos and some tomatoes in the backyard and this little tiny thing. That's not the garden we're talking about here. When we talk about garden, I want you to imagine an oasis of life teeming forth with beauty and possibility. Gordon Winham, a uh, commentator, says this, The Garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of Mesopotamian farmland, but as an archetypal sanctuary. That is a place where God dwells and where a man should worship him. Many of the features of the garden may also be found in later sanctuaries, particularly the tabernacle or Jerusalem temple. These parallels suggest that the garden itself is understood as a sort of, of sanctuary. As we follow the biblical narrative, the tabernacle, which is a fancy way of saying tent, which the people of God constructed to have a place for God as they're in the wilderness, and as well the, the temple that was ultimately built, these are both constructed with Eden in mind. Now, I don't have time today to go through all the little details that the biblical authors put in here to, to show that these temples are actually uh, symbols of Eden, but I do want to mention a few. First, is the structure of the temple. The actual structure of the temple was designed with Eden in mind, right? So on the outer part of the, the, the garden, right, you have Eden, the, garter, the greater land, which is um, akin to the courtyard at the temple and at the tabernacle that the people of God would build. There and then the inner next layer, you have the garden or this holy space that kind of consecrates a different kind of taste. And, and within that space, you have another space which is what the biblical authors refer to as the tree of life and later becomes the holy of holies. The structure of Eden and the structure of the temple, uh, the, the temple was made with Eden in mind. The tabernacle was made with Eden in mind. Now, it's not only that. When Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, there are cherubim or cherubim who guard the holy space to prevent Adam and Eve from coming back. And it is these cherubim or cherubim that are placed on the veil of the temple and on the Ark of the Covenant as symbols of the presence of God. We will follow that theme later. Also, you have the menorah in the tabernacle, which is this uh, candle figure that's supposed to look like the tree of life. The tabernacles are ordained with gold and onyx, which are mentioned in the garden as the raw materials there. And it's also the stuff that they made uh, the priest's garments out of and the decorations in the temple. It's, it's, it tells us in the scriptures that the Lord walked about in the garden. They use that same language to talk about when God's presence shows up in the temple, that he walks around the temple. And there's so many more ornate details that we don't have the time to go into that the biblical authors are trying to be absolutely apparent. We're building this with Eden in mind. So Eden is the reality that the tabernacle and temple symbolize. Now, the people who serve in the temple are called priests, and this is the role the author of Genesis t is telling us that Adam and Eve have been given. They are given the task of royal priests. Let's first talk about royal. Now, the only thing missing in the temple, according to ancient customs, is a statue, is an image. 
If you were to walk into an ancient temple, at the very center of it, all of that would be built around would be a statue, an image of the God who's being served. But if you walk into the temple in Jerusalem, an image is missing. A statue is missing. And it's to this idea that biblical authors link this, that Adam and Eve, human beings, are the image of God, are the statue of God, are the salem of God, that human beings are the representatives of God to the world. Genesis uh, 126 says this, And the Lord said, Let us make mankind in our image. Hebrew there is salem, which also means statue. In our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Humanity is given the task to represent God to creation as his image. And what the biblical authors of Genesis tell us is that being made in the image of God means to rule to have dominion, to be given authority and power to steward the creation that they have been given. There is a royal assignment that has been given to human beings to steward this creation. T. Desmond Alexander says this, to be made in the image of God is to be given regal status. So they are royal in the task they've been given by God in partnering with him, but also they're priests. What is a priest according to the scriptures? Tim Mackey says this. A priest is someone who presides over the overlapping boundary of heaven and earth. Their primary function is to represent God to people and people to God. Priests act as mediators between heaven and earth, between the divine and human. They are embodied representatives of the divine. We see this clearly in Genesis 2.15 where it says this. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. These two words, to work and to to take care of, are priestly images that are used later in the scriptures. Let's take to work first. The word here is avad, and it can be translated to work, to serve, or to worship. It is a common verb that is often used for cultivating the soil. However, this word is commonly used in a religious sense of serving God in priestly text, and they're all over uh, the, the Torah especially regarding the tabernacle duty of the Levites. Now, that's to work. The other word is to take care. The second word translated as to take care is the word shamar, which is commonly used for a priestly service of worship, as well in legal texts observing religious commands and duties. And so these words are used for Levitical responsibility in guarding the tabernacle from intruders. Adam and Eve were royal priests unto God. So humanity is given this beautiful calling to be royal priests, but they squander this calling when they decide they're going to rule without God, that they will define good and evil on their own terms. And so by allowing sin to enter into God's good world, God exiles them from Eden. Because of sin, God's space and our space are separated But God, in his great mercy, initiates a plan to bring his presence back to humanity through the tabernacle and later the temple. These are sacred spaces where God dwells. And so the role of priests is no longer for all humanity, but is then given to a select family line, the tribe of Levi. 
And as the biblical story goes on, you're hoping that a priest will come and reclaim that for humanity. And with every story, you get more and more defeated. You get more and more discouraged. Maybe it's Aaron. Maybe it's this person. Maybe it's that person. And time after time after time, you were let down by these leaders. And so you were longing for a royal priest to come to reclaim that for humanity. And then onto the scene comes this man, David, who God raises up to be a king over his people. Now, as David arrives on the scene, things are not good. They've been under the rule of the first king of Israel, Saul, who in a very kind way did not do a good job. (laughs) In a very nice way to say that. He um, abandoned Yahweh and went about his own way. And as you've been following the biblical narrative, you've seen leader after leader fail. But something special is happening in the life of David. His desire is to restore the presence of God to his people again. And so, This heart of David is captured in his inauguration, him finally being able to come king. Now, there's all sorts of, like, twists and turns in David's story. Like, he's appointed king but doesn't get to be king for, like, decades because of Saul and because of people in Saul's family line, et cetera, et cetera. It's a bunch of drama. I want to read it, 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel. But finally, he gets to the place of being king, and his desire is to restore the presence. So David is anointed king by God, and he finally gets to take his throne. And so here's what happens when that happens. 2 Samuel 6, 12 through 15 says this. So when David went up the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing, when those who were carrying the Ark had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, and wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And while he and all Israel were bringing up the Ark, the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Now, there's a lot happening here, a lot of imagery and a lot of things for us to talk about, and we're going to come back to the story later, but what I want us to realize is this. David here is functioning as a royal priest. He is a king, but he takes the responsibility of priest. Another commentator, Nicholas Perrin, says this. When David has brought the ark into Jerusalem, he carries out several functions exclusively associated with priest. He performs sacrifices an activity ordinarily regulated to priests. He wears an ephod, a privilege normally restricted to priests. He erects the tabernacle, a duty of Levites, and he blesses the people, again, a priestly task. David is being portrayed as taking on the attributes of the head priest of the temple. He becomes a prototypical high priest. So David steps into this role of royal priest as God's presence is restored to Jerusalem. And it's a beautiful and wonderful time. And you're finally thinking, now's the time. We're going to reclaim our story back. But then tragedy befalls David's life. He commits an affair and in doing so and trying to cover up his tracks has the, the person that he cheated with husband murdered. And this just begins the decline in David's life. And there towards the end of David's life, he has gotten so used to trusting in himself that he takes a census of his army, trusting in his own power rather than the Lord, and ultimately um, betrays his calling as king and priest. And so we continue in the story. And onto the scene arrives this man named Jesus. And Jesus, on Passover, enters into the temple courts. And he has with him a whip that he has made. 
And he enters in the temple courts, and he drives out all who are buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he says to them, my house will be called a house of prayer. With the arrival of Jesus on the scene, he reclaims the mantle of royal priest by first cleansing the temple and restoring the temple back to what it was for and then ultimately restoring humanity for their calling and what what they were called to do. And so Jesus makes this vision most clear here in our teaching text. As he clears out the temple, he's declaring that he has come to restore his father's house for what it was intended for and with it the people as well. And Jesus has come to restore the temple and humanity as its priests. But this time, it's going to be different. It's not going back to the same way it was. A new way is coming. As Jesus bears in his body our sin and rebellion, is crucified, and breathes out his last breath, something remarkable happens. There at the temple veil, where the the cherubim are blocking the way for the presence of God, something miraculous takes place. The temple veil is torn. That which held the presence of God within a confined space has now been unleashed into the world. And three days later, as Jesus rises from the grave, he gathers his disciples in the upper room, and he tells them, wait here for the Spirit who comes. He will come and bring, give you power, and then you will be sent out as my witnesses to all the nations. And this leads us to Pentecost, It is 50 days after Jesus is gone. The disciples are waiting. And as they're waiting in the upper room, a mighty wind blows through the place. And on every single believer, a small flame of fire is above their head. Now, if you're a Jewish person, you know exactly what this means. All of these people have become many temples. They have become little houses for God to dwell in. That's the image of the rushing wind and the fire. That exact same thing happened when God filled the temple at first. And so humanity is not only the priests, but they are the temple. This is why Paul tells the church in Corinth, y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You all are the temple of the Spirit. Collectively, the believers are this temple. Now, Peter summarizes this reality in saying this in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He says, you are like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So Peter draws on the image of building a temple, stacking up stones, and he's saying, you're a stone, and you're a stone, and you're a stone. And guess what? You're all living stones building up a spiritual house. Now, this does not mean an immaterial house. It means a house made from the Spirit. He says, you guys are all becoming that, and you guys will then be also not only the temple, but also a holy priesthood. Now, the early church 
carries this calling again of being royal priests on the earth into the future and to the coming day where the ultimate royal priest, Jesus, comes back. And we get this insanely beautiful vision in John's revelation. It's Revelation 5. Chaos is breaking out in heaven because there is a scroll that needs to be opened and nobody can open the scroll. And everybody is freaking out. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then suddenly, John hears with his ear the lion of the tribe of Judah. But he turns and he sees a slain lamb being Jesus. And Jesus comes and he opens the scroll. And heaven breaks out in worship as the one who is worthy opens the scroll. And this is the song that heaven breaks out in. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal because you were slain. And with your blood you've purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And notice this line. You have, been, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. A part of exalting Jesus is reminding humanity of their calling. We have been made a kingdom and priest to serve our God, and we will reign on the earth. Royal priests. And this is something that we see ultimately carried into the new creation. Revelation 22, when Eden is restored, we are told that there we continue to serve and minister to the Lord as priests. Now, that's the theology of, of human beings as royal priests. Now, what on earth does that look like? Now, what does that mean for you and me today? In the New Testament, we see that the church sees themselves as royal priests, but not all of them work in the temple. Nobody goes and buys priestly garments. They're all mothers and fathers, businessmen, trade workers, fishermen, accountants, all of these things. So how do you... Be a royal priest right where you are. The New Testament, um, the church accepts their identity as the body of Christ. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the royal priest who comes to restore humanity to their calling. So he is the ultimate royal priest, but he has sent us out as ambassadors on his, be on his behalf, by his authority, to be his body in the world. And that is one of the most common ways to refer to the New Testament church is as the body of Christ, as his hands and feet in the world, if you will. So regardless of what you do, this is your fundamental calling. Whether you're an accountant, a manager, a barista, or a stay-at-home mom, you are called to be a royal priest. And so what does it look like for us to take on our responsibility to minister to the Lord as royal priest. Well, a priest's job always looks like three things. Worship, service, prayer. Worship, service, and prayer. Now, these three capture what it means to minister to the Lord. And as we look at each one of these, I want to draw back on that story of David's inauguration and draw on the on the customs of the priest to kind of talk about what this looks like fleshed out. First is worship. Now, everybody loves a good entrance song. Am I wrong? Right? Whatever sporting event or whatever it is, I'm still trying to get Jake to make me a worship, an entrance song when I come out, maybe eventually. But an entrance song is so cool. You know what I mean? It encapsulates so much. 
And if you have a bad entrance song, there's nothing worse, kind of, right? Um, I saw this reel where this guy had this UFC fighter wanted to come into the Halo theme song, which is like ominous and kind of creepy and ooh, like Gregorian chants. But the person running the music accidentally put on Halo by Beyonce. Baby, I can see your halo. That's what he's walking into. And so you're about to fight, you know? You've got to get yourself pumped and amped. And Beyonce is your soundtrack, right? It's not going, and it's a love song, you know? And so it kind of ruined the moment for the guy, to say the least. We all love a good entrance song. Now, David had years to think about his. You know, what are we, what are we coming into? And David chooses a beautiful song, and it's recorded for us in Psalm 24. Are you ready? Here's what David enters into Jerusalem, restoring the presence of God, being inaugurated as king. Lift up your heads. Your gates be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Strong start so far, right? Let's see your eyes. Here comes the king. Here comes the king. Who is this king of glory? And this is where everything gets turned on its head. The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So instead of David being the one who's getting all the praise and acclaim, the entrance song he chooses for his inauguration is that Yahweh would be on the lips of all the people. That it wouldn't be about him, it would be about Yahweh. Now, it was customary for a king's inauguration for the king to be at the back of the parade because they are what you've been longing and waiting for. But something unexpected happens. As the parade begins to get closer and you begin to hear the music, the first person through the door is David. He's leading the way for this procession. And at the very back, the place of honor, it's the Ark of the Covenant. It is a symbol of God's presence coming into Jerusalem. David is making much of Yahweh here. And so what does worship look like in the story of David? It looks like praise, it looks like joy, and it looks like holy foolishness. Now, if you were to go to the temple, as you would walk by, you would hear songs being sung by the priest in there, poetry and songs being performed for the Lord. And David takes this responsibility of worshiping seriously. Worship for priests looks like praise, joy, and holy foolishness. So first, David ascribes to God that he is the king of glory, not David, but it is the Lord. And a day meant to give glory to David, David puts the name of Yahweh on the lips of all the people. To worship God means we praise him by ascribing to him the worth that he is due. To be royal priest means this, our, the name on our lips should always be Jesus. Second, it looks like joy. Now, this celebration, this inauguration was marked by food and music and dancing. And David knew that something that we take for granted today, and it's this. The presence of God requires a response of joy. The presence of God requires a response of joy. Look at his words that he penned in Psalm 16. He says this, you have made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures at your right hand. When you realize that all that you long for is found in him, when you get into his presence, the only thing that could come out of you is joy. 
And brothers and sisters, how I long for our community to be marked by joy, to be marked by joy in our gatherings, that the shouts of joy would erupt from this place. And lastly, it looks like holy foolishness. Now, David here embodies a kind of holy foolishness by the way he dresses and the way he dances. First, he's wearing a linen ephod, which is a priestly garment, but it's not the priestly garment you wear like out and about. You would have this royal robe that you'd put on as a priest to say, hey, I'm a priest. This is kind of like my uniform. The linen ephod is kind of like the underwear underneath. And so David culturally is dancing in his underwear before the people. And you know this is the case because his wife is very upset that David decided to do this because this is not proper king behavior. You know what I'm saying? And so when David finally comes home, she's there at the door tapping her foot. Excuse me, right? And she's very upset. David doesn't care. He is there to show that he is undignified before the Lord. The Lord is worthy of his foolish dance and, his foolish, and, 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 and dressing in this priestly underwear of sorts. And notice that he's also dancing, also not customary for priests. I mean, also not customary for kings to come and to dance before the community like that. But David is leading the way for what he longs the culture of Jerusalem to be like, and it looks like dancing before the Lord. Now, the text tells us that David danced with all his might. So he's not doing, you know, snap your fingers side to side here, right? Danced with all his might. He's pulling out all the stops, all the moves. Now, it doesn't say he danced well, but he danced with everything that he had, pouring it all out before the people. And if I could, I want to lean into something briefly for our community. How I long to see us live with a holy kind of foolishness. How I long to see this in our midst. When was the last time you danced before the Lord? I mean, really. When was the last time you just let joy erupt out of your heart in a way that changes you? Now, what's most often in a community gathering like this is like, you know it's really happening when arms go up, right? That's the sign that like, boom, spirit fell, hands are up. You know, that's like the extent of it. But how I'd long to see our community become undignified before the Lord and dance before him in joy. And not so it's like, watch me or anything, but it's because this is what happens when you encounter the presence of God. You erupt in joy. Now, you have no problem dancing at parties or quinceañeras or weddings or anything of that nature. Why? Because they're celebratory in nature. So you have no problem at the concert, phone up, shaking your head, going all crazy around. But in church, it is forbidden for your arms to leave your side, you know? It's like you have no problem being undignified for Coldplay, right? But for the Lord Jesus, it's all this reservation. And look, I'm not asking for anyone to step into something that's not uniquely them. But what I am asking is, allow your heart to be overcome by joy. And whatever that expression looks like for you, lean into that. Because this is what it looks like to worship Jesus. Now, it's holy in that it's set apart for Jesus, but it also looks like foolishness. David did not give a rip about what all the people thought about him. He was dancing before the Lord. And so when we worship as a community, it's not what the person next to you thinks you sound like. You're not performing for them. It's not what they think about you. You are worshiping the Lord Jesus. 
And as our team leads us, it's not a performance. They are carrying us in like David leading the way to fill our house with songs of joy. Oh, that we would become foolish in our joy. A holy kind of foolishness that we become undone before the Lord. Now, it looks like worship. It also looks like service. It is a priest's job to serve in the temple, remember, to work and to take care of it. They would offer sacrifices to God. Now, when the presence is restored to Jerusalem, David offers sacrifices and blesses the people. And look back at what Peter tells the early church, that they are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Now, when it says spiritual sacrifice, it doesn't mean immaterial. It means sacrifices empowered by the Spirit. So what does Peter mean? The author of Hebrews expands on this idea, saying this, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of our lips openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So it looks like worship. It looks like telling the story of God. It looks like loving and caring for the neighbors. As Paul later says in Romans, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. The early church saw themselves as royal priests so much so that they sacrificed of their lives to bless the people. Thirdly, it looks like prayer. One of the main jobs of a priest was to intercede, to pray on behalf of the people, to stand in the gap for people um, and pray for others. And we see David take this call seriously. Tyler Staten, recalling this moment, says this, After his entrance, David went into the palace, sat down with his board of advisors, and laid out a plan. David hired 288 worship leaders, prophets, and elders to pray and worship in the tabernacle, in that tent, presumably 24 hours a day. He was a king leading a military during an era of tribal warfare, and he just emptied the national savings account for prayer. David put prayer at the very center, prayer back at the very center of God's people. He leveraged everything for prayer. It's like, hey, shouldn't we buy some more guns or more weapons for our military, more rations? No, more worship leaders because he realized where the strength of the army came from. And so this means as royal priests, we take up the mantle of prayer and devote ourselves to become a house of prayer. Now, how do we become a house of prayer for all nations? Well, um, I spend a lot of time on our graphics. Um, I don't know if anybody notices, but I work really hard. And so I'm sorry, but um, this came with great thought. And then I was like, oh, he just put like little lines and a thing, another big deal. Hold on. So when I started this series, I had this vision in my mind that from the house of prayer would emanate the presence of God to the city. And so what I tried to capture in this graphic, poorly, maybe, but what I tried to do is from the house of prayer is emanating this light and presence as a beacon of the city. And as it goes out further, it reaches out further and further and further. And so week after week, you've been sitting here looking at this graphic, having no idea that that was snuck in there. A little Easter egg for you. But this has been my prayer and heart since the very beginning of this, ser- uh, this series that we would take the call to pray seriously and that our prayers would unleash beautiful things here in the city. Again, Tyler Satan says this, prioritize prayer in the church and you get the kingdom in the city. That from this place where we come to minister to the Lord, it just explodes and erupts and overflows into the city. Now, to be very clear, 
What I'm not saying is that we use prayer as a means to get what we want from God. But that something happens when the people of God are so captivated by this vision of Jesus that it spills out over. It just naturally overflows. It never stays confined within the four walls of a building. It erupts and spills over into the city when we make much of Jesus in this place. And so my prayer since we started this series is this, God send hungry people who want to see this happen in our day and age. And so the way that we build a culture of prayer is not because one guy comes up here and talks for seven hours cumulative and then we become a house of prayer. It becomes a bunch of individuals taking up the mantle to pray. It's not about just, you know, catchy sermons, a good worship song. It's about every individual in here saying, I will take up my role as a royal priest and begin to intercede on behalf of the people. Now, prayer is not something we simply do. It is what we build our lives around. Now, I know that sounds like super daunting. You're like, dude, I prayed the other day, 30 seconds, spilled out my guts, done. So, you know, that's the best I have right now. Don't look to me to be the one who carries this. But Paul says this, 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstance, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The posture of building your life around prayer is what's been known as unceasing prayer. Brother Lawrence calls this practicing the presence of God, and I love that so much better. And I feel like it's the most helpful way to think about it. Remember, prayer is fundamentally relational. So this idea of unceasing prayer or practicing the presence of God is not about some sort of meditative state that you remain in all day long, but it's about inviting God into every moment of your life. Dallas Willard says this, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is keep God before our minds. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect and redirect our minds constantly to him. Here's the basic idea, to continually bring God into your mind and bring your life to God. This is what Paul means by unceasing prayer. Now, the ways this is possible is through two things, discipline and delight. Philip Yancey says, I have come to see prayer as a privilege, not a duty. Like all good things, prayer requires some discipline, Yet I believe that life with God should seem more like friendship than duty. Hear me in this. Building a life of prayer is not going to happen by accident. You're not going to pray here and say, oh, Lord, help me to pray more. And then tomorrow you like unceasing prayer all day long. It requires some discipline. And so I want to invite our community into something called a daily prayer rhythm. Now, this upcoming Wednesday is the start of the Lent season as we prepare ourselves for Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. And so what I want to invite our community is, is for the 40 days of Lent to take on a daily prayer rhythm where you pause three times a day to pray. Morning, noon, and night. This is one of the oldest rhythms ever in the church. And I want to invite us into this. Now before you get all freaked out, oh, this is crazy, it's really not that bad. First, morning. We want to invite our community to pray the Lord's Prayer. Now it's not just... As you go into the car, our Father, our Father, our you know, trying to get it out on the way down. You use the Lord's Prayer as a template to shape the affections of your heart. But just before you go and do anything, before you crawl out of the bed, before you brush your teeth, just pray the Lord's Prayer slowly and let it permeate down into your heart. Now, midday, we want to commit as a community to praying for the lost. So imagine, right when you sit down, when you're about to eat lunch, right, or you're driving to go get lunch, 
Ask the Lord to bring to mind people who don't know Jesus and pray for them. And lastly, to end your day in the evening is to pray gratitude, which is simply just tell God thank you for things that happen in your day. Lord, thank you for the cup of coffee this morning. Thank you that, you know, we got that bid that we put out. Lord, thank you so much that, you know, me and my kids didn't get in that fight today. Whatever it was, just thank you, Lord Jesus. So the Lord's Prayer, praying for the lost and gratitude. And here's the commitment. 40 days. If nothing happens for you in these 40 days, which I hardly doubt, but if nothing happens for you in these 40 days, then after the 40 days, you're done. You don't have to do it anymore. But here's my suspicion. This will become a pattern that you keep for the rest of your life. Because beautiful things happen when we make space for Jesus. Now, that's the discipline. Now, I want to talk about the delight portion of this. Brother Lawrence says this, make a private chapel of our heart where we can retire from time to time to commune with him. And so the delight portion of this is of this, I want to commission us to make chapels in our heart. Now, what does this look like? This praying without ceasing, this practicing the presence of God. You know what Brother Lawrence said who wrote this book, Practicing the Presence of God? You know when he felt God the most? Was it in a beautiful worship service or as he's pouring over the scriptures or as he's um, ministering to a friend? No, it was as he was washing the dishes. He was a dishwasher in a monastery, and he said, when I washed the dishes, I felt the presence and love of God like never before. And so here's what I want to invite us to do. Invite God into your ordinary mundane moments of life. Maybe you're a barista, As you're frothing the milk, would you pray, come Holy Spirit? If you're a stay-at-home mom and you're reaching into the cabinet to get the cleaning supplies again to clean up another mess, again, ask, Lord Jesus, give me patience. If you're in sales and you're making all these sales calls, in between sales calls, say, Lord, show me grace. If you're a plumber, as you're going back to get your tools in the truck, as you're pulling the tools out of the truck, you're saying, God, let me know your love. As you're about to eat a delicious meal, pause and say, thank you, God, for taste buds. And thank you, Lord, for this burrito, right? You're just inviting God in these little moments. And it's not miraculous. It's not a 40-minute prayer. It's just inviting God into your day. And what you'll realize is unceasing prayers much easier than you think as you just invite God into your day. So I want us to make chapels of our heart, invite God there. So the discipline is morning, noon, and night. Pick your own times, whatever makes the most sense for you, but morning, noon, and night, pray, those, pray through those prompts. And lastly, is to make chapels of your heart. And watch what happens over these 40 days. Would you stand with me as we close?